the Trump people went to the Ecuador government and said, hey, you know that $20 million in federal aid we give you every year? It's gone if you don't uh, slap restrictions on Pakistanis and Iraqis and Syrians. And uh, here's a list of others, too, we'd like you to do. And they did it. Welcome back to the Live Drop. Here's your Mad Minute for Todd Bensman. He talks about the nexus between immigration and national security in his book, America's Covert Border War, the untold story of the nation's battle to prevent jihadist infiltration. We talk about the threat of Muslim extremists crossing in the varied and circuitous international routes they may take, how some, like the large group of Haitians now, can cross from Panama through the story Darien Gap and across Mexico and seek asylum after crossing into the U.S., Todd currently serves as the Texas-based Senior National Security Fellow for the Center for Immigration Studies, CIS, Washington, D.C. Immigration Policy Institute. While we talk around the politics of the border, his book is an insider story of the ambitious American counterterrorism programs built after 9-11. Todd raises the question, have we become a victim of our own counterterrorism success? And I ask him, what's a border rat? Begin transmission now. Yeah, so how, how are you doing? Like, where are you right now? Uh, I'm in Austin, Texas. So I'm, I'm at home. I work out of my house here. A couple of days, I'll head down to the border for the week. So I'll be on the road all next week. Right. And what will, what will you be doing? Just sort of assess what's going on in that on that part of the border. Nobody ever goes over there. Most everybody, you know, the media is all going. They're either in El Paso or in the southern tip of Texas. This is what's called the Big Bend sector. Think big sky, West Texas wilderness, mostly. It's usually the slowest part of the border because people, you know, migrants don't like to have to backpack through there. Right. But the, num- the numbers are up like 400%. So wow. I'm going to go over and try to figure out why. And I'll go to the, the Mexico side and actually interview the immigrants. Uh, there's supposed to, uh, supposed to be a whole bunch of them all masked up over there on the other side and they're so I should be able to get to them there and I'll write a few stories and come home. Sure. Have they been, are they being held in Mexican detention centers? I mean, they were caught by the Mexicans before they crossed the border. The Mexicans are fine with them as long as they keep going. <laughs> Just turn so, a blind eye. Yeah. yeah. They're not going to spend any money on doing anything that they don't have to. You know, Trump would say, you better, you're going to, you're stuck with them. They're your problem. Right. And when that was happening, the Mexicans were deporting them. And spending a lot of money doing that. I think maybe within an hour or two of Biden actually taking, doing the inauguration, all that ended. (laughs) They just started, the Mexicans announced, we're not taking any of them back from you anymore. Right. Uh, You're a national, senior national security fellow at the Center for Immigration Studies, experienced and awarded national security journalists. I mean, you grew up in Texas, raised in Phoenix, Arizona. I was just, um, I was just wondering what, just to go way back. Like I, I was born in a border town in the north, but I was just wondering what it was like for you. Like what your first experience or exposure was to the border and, and what it meant to you. I mean, really, it was my interest was never very academic about the border. You know, in high school, friends and I would go down to Puerto Penasco and Nogales for you know recreation. There's, you know, there's a big bay there, the Choya Bay. It was a really laid back, kind of a nice Mexican town on the border, and you could drive down in a couple hours. And it wasn't a, for any anything academic at that time. <laughs> so um, I, I definitely enjoyed the uh, Mexico, and didn't didn't never feared going to Mexico, maybe because of that. But much later, uh, after I became a journalist and went lived in San Antonio, close to the border, I realized that the hottest story in town was that border. 2006, there was all kinds of uh, murder and mayhem and civil drug war going on over there. I wanted a, a piece of that. So I started going to the border and doing stories. That's when I really kind of cut my teeth on border reporting. I would say from 2006 to uh, 2009, I went every chance I could and came back with all kinds. Of, you, you, you can't throw a rock very far without hitting a really good story down there. Yeah. Do you speak Spanish? No. You know, it's funny. I did a Western in 1999. I'm from New York state. So it's kind of a big deal to do a Western, right? To get down there and <laughs> see like a Northeastern guy on a horse was pretty funny for the first time. But um, the Wranglers were, you know, these kind of hard boiled East 
maybe freeze dried is probably a better word, like uh, just East Texan ranchers, you know, and we shot down in Brackettville, which is, which was near Del Rio. And one of the places we shot was this really large ranch, which was right on the Rio Grande. And there were probably at least two or three different times while we were shooting, someone would just sort of come through the bush or from a long distance away. But they were just walking with an empty plastic uh, water gallon container and, you know, they'd come up to craft service and we'd give them something to eat. And then they'd, you know, have to call like border patrol, I guess, or, but um, it seemed to be a pretty regular occurrence. And that was 1999. Yeah. Well, I was just in Brackettville a couple of weeks ago and uh, it's still going on. Is it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. All over town. Anyway. How did all this lead to you kind of interviewing migrants at uh, detention facilities or along the border? That's a longer story. I don't know how much time you've got for that. But uh, when I was in San Antonio working for Hearst Newspapers, I got interested in tips and information that my federal sources were giving me that Arabs were coming over the border, particularly Iraqis. Eventually, I found one and did a, a series of stories about how that Iraqi got over the Texas border. Right. It took me all over the world. I was in. Uh, I, I just traced his uh, route from Syria and Jordan through Guatemala and Mexico and all the way to Detroit, which is where he ultimately ended up. And I did a series of stories about how Iraqis could get through and the whole system of uh, smuggling and document fraud that was necessary. And that led to this series of stories, and uh, eventually I was, through those stories, was recruited to join the Texas Department of Public Safety to work on this as an intelligence matter. I was in the Intelligence Counterterrorism Division of the Department of Public Safety, which had an interest in that kind of migration over the southern border of Texas. And eventually came to learn that there were too many of those kinds of migrants coming from those kind of countries to be for for the FBI and the other intelligence agencies to interview all of them before they bonded out and got into the interior. So, So I started a program where I trained my analysts to go down into the detention centers and interview them for the federals. Of course, and I did a lot of the interviewing myself and my team did a lot of the interviews, and then we would produce intelligence reporting, just hand it all over to the Fed so that they could use it and do something with it. But bonded out, you mean kind of jumped jumped bail on there? No, no. Most of those migrants are called special interest aliens. They're from Middle Eastern countries, right? places where there's terrorist organizations. When they cross, they, they uh, claim Perfect. asylum. Once you claim asylum and you go through the original, the initial screening, judge will let you bond out, post a bond, usually not excessive. And uh, then you get out with a court date and you're into the interior. You can qualify for a social security card and work authorization and you're here pretty much. I mean, it seems like that bond fee is part of the whole smuggling package or do you have like a little Venmo account somewhere that you're spending as you, as you make your way along? You know, that's, that's a whole other novel too. Uh, you know, most of these, the, the smuggling fees to go from a place like, uh, you know, Somalia or uh, recently uh, I wrote a big piece about a Pakistani smuggling network that just got dinged by the Treasury Department and the uh, Department of Justice. They don't have the guys in custody, but they're going after their money, which is almost as good. And those guys charge $20,000 a head to get from Pakistan and Afghanistan to the southern border. Uh, Sometimes they'll charge $50,000. I've seen $60,000. Those people are either using, uh, they're borrowing the money from friends, relatives, or selling property. It seems like everybody's got an uncle who's got a parcel of land somewhere in Bangladesh. I'm amazed at how much land gets sold for these things. So before we jump into a little more, I mean, you just even mentioned even some more players in this. What really caught my eye was the covert border war. I thought, wait a second, (laughs) anything with covert war kind of grabs my attention. (laughs) So I saw your book and gobbled it up and and read it, really enjoyed it, you know, to find out more. Yeah, I just want to say I really enjoyed the book, but who are the the major players down there on, on the border? I mean, you mentioned DPS, the Department of Public Safety for the state of Texas, who else is involved? And I think you've also broke it down into the near war and the far war. Maybe you could divide it up. Yeah. 
The biggest player in all of this would be have to be ICE, Homeland Security Investigations, HSI. Right. They have the most resources and the most knowledge and the widest, farthest reach. Those guys are stationed in American embassies and uh, allied embassies all over Latin America, hunting these smugglers down. Uh, the Pakistani guy that I just wrote about, uh, Abdi Ali Khan, that was a big HSI case. Every time there's one of these cases that happens, it's going to be HSI. However, they're just the ones whose names get put on here uh, on the press releases when it happens that never get covered, by the way. But there is also a, a major role that the FBI plays, the Joint Terrorism Task Forces along the borders. When Yemenis get caught, like they did recently in Calexico, California, crossing the border from Mexico, who are on the terror watch list, it's going to be FBI all the way on those. They're going to take possession of those uh, those detainees and interview the, the heck out of them for days on end and you know, dump their pocket trash. And so, but then you've got a wider array of intelligence services that are involved. For example, Southcom, U.S. Southern Command, and Northcom, who have intelligence groups that are dedicated to studying these kind of migrants and these kind of smuggling organizations because they have assets in the countries and are able to, let's just say, collect for HSI, for the FBI. They're all working together. So you've got the military services. When there are operations, you'll see a CIA can be involved. There are, over time, satellites were used to you know, spy into certain areas. The U.S. Coast Guard uh, has been involved with uh, their assets. So really, there's a, a, a wide array of uh, the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agencies Agency. I just wrote a, a piece for, st- for Spy Talk that is based on a certain chapter of my book where you know, I, I recount how I would go into the detention facilities usually, or not usually, but sometimes with the DIA here on our side, and we would interview uh, migrants together. The reason why I call it Covert Border War, A, is it's a great title and it's, it's catchy, but it's also accurate because most of what happens in, this, in these operations is classified. The reporting, the information about who's on the terror watch list, about that person, those are going to be at the high classified level. And the general public may never know about it, can't ever really know about these cases, Success stories. There are a lot of success stories that will never be known. I try to put some of those in. For the most part, it's classified, and therefore that's a, a, a synonym for covert. Right. So I think it's accurate, but there are all around the fringes of this covert border war very public information that they exist. It seems, you know, at least up north, it seems when there's a criminal case involved, then Everybody wants to get their acronym into that salad somehow, because I think that might mean, like, I don't really know what's going on down on the border. I'm just kind of speculating from someone who just reads the news. But you're saying it's probably a little different with some of these other organizations that want to maintain a kind of clandestine role. Yeah, I mean, typically when, when they break into public view, it'll be in a court case. And you can see which agencies were involved and how they brought the case together, how the case came together. It's uh, more like an after-action court for somebody like me, because by the time it gets into a court system, all the the covertness is is over. All of the investigative, the way they did it is over. But very often, you can see what they did. And you can see that the main agencies that did the cases will be throughout, will be in there. But there's no reason to put the supporting in there, the supporting roles of an outfit like Southcom or the CIA, which never wants to be named in anything like that. You'll see HSI in the, for example, the Khan case that just came out a week ago. That's HSI all the way. They're all over it. The Treasury Department got involved in that one. The first time I've ever seen that happen. The other thing is that a lot of these cases w- would not happen. The smuggling uh, prosecutions and investigations can't happen without allied governments. So there's this whole other aspect to why these operations need to be covert. 
because we're dealing with uh, foreign intelligence services that are doing things for us and with us all the time. And that has to be protected as well. I guess as a journalist, you described to going to Amman, Jordan, to the Guatemalan consulate slash uh, antique furniture store, <laughs> doing a little bit of investigating yourself. Can you talk a little bit about the, the market for visas in South America? And why is a Mexican visa or passport the most valuable? Uh, you know, I guess you read, I have a whole chapter dedicated to the role that Latin American embassies and consular offices in other countries across the pond in the Middle East play in enabling the traffic uh, to the southern border. And it's really, uh, it's not rocket science. I mean, people don't know about it. Those embassies and consulate offices are a fount of illegal passports and visas and legal visas too. You can't cross the Atlantic unless you fly usually. And in order to fly, you need to have a passport and a visa so that when you land, you can show it to the inspection guy. So there's this whole market in that. And those visas become very valuable, especially for countries that are closest to the United States border. And Mexico, is the, uh, has, is the, their, visa, their passports are the most valuable, if you can get your hands on one of those, because it prevents, it short circuits your, your journey. You can get a Brazilian passport, but then you've got to travel 10 days through the Darien Gap jungle, braving um, bandits and mosquitoes and snakes, and it's horrible, rapists and all of that. But if you can fly to Mexico City, then you're practically here at the border. So Iraqis that I initially interviewed back in 2007 were telling me that they, got, they, they paid $700 for a Guatemala visa in Amman, Jordan. And I was like, huh, okay. But they never went to the embassy. They paid somebody else to go do it, which is illegal. Nobody does that. It was on its face, prima facie, illegal, the way they got the, their Guatemalan documents. So when I went to Syria to interview immigrants or would-be aspiring immigrants heading for the U.S. border, I went over to, the, to Amman and just asked around, like, where is there an Amman embassy around here? And I was very close to it. There it was just down the street. And there was a flagpole in the middle of the downtown business district in 2007 is when I was there that was flapping, uh, had a Guatemalan flag. There was an honorary consul uh, woman uh, who was manning her furniture store. And upstairs she had uh, an embassy office for people who wanted to go to Guatemala. And she said, you know, I, I never, ever give visas to anybody who I haven't fully investigated and met in person and have signed the papers right here in front of me. And then I said, well, I've just interviewed five Iraqis who said that they paid you, you know, $700 through somebody else to get their visas. And she said, get out right now. That get out of my office. Was, was sort of my answer right there. But Mexican embassies are and consulate offices are all over the Middle East, and they're very frequently implicated in selling passports, Mexican passports to these travelers, uh, which I find uh, is a, a, a serious national security threat and a breach. And I opine throughout the book that, you know, there's something needs to be done about those embassies over there to shut that down. You can buy a Mexican passport for 10 grand in Singapore or Mumbai, India, places you would never imagine. That just seems like a lot of intelligence work, right? <laughs> I mean, all these, you said all these, you, you, you listed in your book some countries where these embassies, yeah, aren't really regulated. They're, they're kind of flourishing with selling these. I think you mentioned, you know, Russia. I found, you know, there are, there are nations that are obviously hostile to the United States. Think Cuba and Venezuela. Right. And so I stopped by both of those embassies when I was in Syria that year and found a line of Syrians half a block long waiting to get their nine different kinds of visas to Venezuela. And, you know, big Hugo Chavez poster on the wall at that time. And they were just handing them out. It costs, you know, 50 bucks or something to, to, to get a visa to Venezuela, which then is right on the uh, migrant trails to the United States. 
And I paid a visit to the Cuban embassy too, because a lot of these migrants flying from the Middle East on their way to the southern border fly through Havana first. And then from Havana to Nicaragua or Costa Rica or Mexico or something like that. And the, the Cuban embassy official that I interviewed sat down in an interview and says, I asked him, what's it take? And he says, 70 bucks. And we don't care if you're a terrorist or anything. We don't ask. We don't care. In fact, we kind of hope they are because Bush started this war and they'll come back home to him to finish it. So there's a hostility. They they like it. Some of these countries are very happy to give visas uh, to potential terrorists. Yeah, they should just send you to every embassy and consulate (laughs) just to to go there and ask for a, a visa to... I mean, I think they also realize that people aren't going to Cuba. That's not their end final destination. No, and I, I, I said, you know, that you realize that these Syrians are not coming on their tourist visit visa to come hang out here in, in Havana. And they, the guy's like, yeah, we don't care where they go or whether they stay. But, you know, even worse is uh, Ecuador. I talk about Ecuador in the book, which eliminated all visa requirements. There's no illegal humans and that kind of thing. All right. And, they just simply have everybody, anybody who wants to fly into Ecuador can fly in and there's no visa requirement. So, of course, all the human smugglers, you know, move to Ecuador, their operations to Ecuador. That's a problem to this day, even though uh, Donald Trump tried to put restrictions on those for like the Pakistanis and Somalis and some of the other ones, Iraqis, maybe a year or two ago, they, they the Trump administration did that. But I'm sure by now, those are now not being enforced. How would he do that in Ecuador? I mean, what kind of policy could dictate, you know, Ecuadorian visas? It was easy. The Trump people went to the Ecuador government and said, hey, you know that $20 million in federal aid we give you every year? It's gone if you don't uh, slap restrictions on Pakistanis and Iraqis and Syrians. And uh, here's a list of others, too, we'd like you to do. And they did it. Oh, they did. Wow. Yeah. I went to Ecuador once, mountain climbing. I didn't, didn't need a visa. You talked about some of these other pretty colorful and resourceful smuggling operators. I mean, Khan is one of them that you wrote about recently, was in your book. Are there any others that you remember as particularly notorious? These are very specialized sm- human smugglers. These are not like the, guy, the coyotes at the Mexican border. Right. These are businessmen and women who are usually multilingual, educated, uh, have residences in multiple countries and have houses and connections, and they can speak the language in Pakistan and uh, Spanish. And they're very unique individuals, and they make a lot of money doing these uh, intercontinental travel journeys for people. They're not particularly dangerous. They're not particularly ideological, like not purposefully dangerous, but they're so profit motivated, they don't really care who who they're bringing in. And quite a few of these guys knew that the people that were suspected that the people that they were bringing in were terrorists. And one of them in particular comes to mind. Uh, his last name was Al-Hawk, and he was a Pakistani smuggler busted a few years ago by HSI. What was interesting about that case is that the HSI agents decided to test whether he would wittingly move a terrorist. So they slipped some informants into his organization and said, hey, we need you to move some Pakistani Taliban guys who the government's after, dangerous guys. They offered him money and were waiting to see if he would say, no, I don't do that sort of thing. I would never move a terrorist. And he was like, yeah, of course, I'll take the cash and added that he wouldn't care if they got to the United States, whether they mopped floors or blew up or blew themselves up. What was interesting also about that case is that they slapped a terrorism enhancement on him and got a much bigger prison sentence on all Hawk for being so willing to move terrorists in. But some of these guys were terrorists themselves. Uh, Ahmed Dakani, a Somali, comes to mind. He was operating a smuggling ring in Brazil, out of Brazil, bringing Somalis in, and then eventually decided to uh, come over the border himself. Uh, he got caught up in a detention center, FBI sting. The FBI had a, uh, an undercover informant in the detention center who was a Somali and befriended Dakani, and Dakani told the informant everything about his al-Shabaab position. He was a, an official 
with Al-Shabaab, had all the training, had procured weapons for the terrorist organization, and knew a whole bunch of them. Some of those that he moved when he was smuggling were uh, terrorist operatives. And when he told the feds about this, that this launched this crazy, frantic nationwide manhunt for these Somalis that he had smuggled in. Mm-hmm. And they, they never could find them. They never could catch these guys. But there was all sorts of drama out of that. And he was a terrorist himself and was ultimately prosecuted, not for that, but for immigration fraud and went to prison and served his time. And then they deported him. There was another SIA smuggler. I call him Kingpins. Right. Uh, this one, a, a female named Nancy Zia. And what was interesting about her is when she got caught, the, she was caught twice. The first time ICE busted her, and I think she got about a year in prison and then got out and went back to the, to the business, tried to kill the, assassinate the ICE agent who did this. And they found that out in the second investigation when they laid hands on the, a manuscript of a book that she had written describing how she had gone and surveilled the officer's home, laid eyes on the wife, on him, got his whole, was trying to get a weapon and was going to murder them in their homes and ultimately hit the eject button on that. So that, that's the, those are the kind of characters, you know, there was a golf pro who is an SIA smuggler who went all around uh, playing you know, professional golf tournaments and he would use those to make connections to help his business moving aliens so from uh, Middle Eastern countries. So there's a whole chapter on the SIA kingpins and how we, who they are and how we caught them, how they try to, to uh, evade us, that the American public knows nothing about. It's been going on for years. It's fascinating. It's fascinating. And I didn't realize that they'd had their own. I mean, these aren't nation states that you're kind of working against. I mean, sometimes you are, they're usually just turning a blind eye, but for the most part, these are private organizations. And I didn't realize they'd had that kind of counterintelligence. I mean, that she was actually following the, surveilling the HSI agent. Full disclosure, I did play an ICE agent who was stationed in Santiago, Chile. It was a comedy. I'm not an ICE agent, but I played one. I played one in a movie that kind of went straight to video, but uh, yeah. (laughs) Not on TV, but straight to video. Yeah. And SIAs are special, special interest aliens. I mean, I guess, I, I guess, you know, you were interviewing people at the border and it just seems like there's a big difference in intentions. I mean, let's go back a little bit to the SIA, like special interest alien. You said in your, in your book that this kind of, this term sort of came out uh, or kind of came into use and became a little more popular during the, during the Obama administration with the memo that came out around that time. Like by focusing attention on SIAs at the border, did that get as why didn't that get as much attention as, say, you know, Trump's travel ban to those ten those ten countries? Yeah, because if you cover the SIA issue, the like a straight coverage of the SIA issue, then you have to acknowledge that there are SIAs, <laughs> and most people in the media don't ever want to do that. They for I don't know why. They don't want to say that there are that there is this migration. I think it's political bias myself. Uh, I'd say that in the book. I don't mind saying it here. And so, you know, that sort of thing gets no coverage. To cover it means that you have to say they exist, and nobody wants to do that. But, you know, just backtracking a little bit, the term SIA, special interest alien, actually came out in about 20, 2003 2004, shortly after 9-11, in those, those, those first crazy years after 9-11, when the emergent new Homeland Security Establishment, DHS, Department of Homeland Security, and everybody was wondering where the next strike was going to happen. And logically, they said, well, of course, the border, the southern border, it's wide open. They could just come crossing in. They, there's traffic has been coming in for years. We've always known about it and not cared about it. Now all of a sudden we care about it, and so we're gonna we're going to um, set up a whole protocol for caring about that. And part of that was to identify the migrants from certain countries, and and, the, and for special treatment, for special security vetting, 
at the border when we catch them. And there's a whole uh, complexity about that. But but the quick version of it is that the intelligence community, the agencies uh, like think CIA and military uh, agencies assessed which countries populations might be of higher risk just because of the inculcation of Islamic extremist ideologies in all the institutions and the presence of actual terrorist organizations. So Afghanistan, obviously, and Iraq, obviously, would be on that list. So any Iraqi from a country on that list or from Iraq would be stamped special interest alien as soon as we caught them. Oh, they had a stamp, SIA. It was an official term. There have been other terms. Right now, the new one, the Biden administration came in and and changed it again a month or two ago. And now it's called special interest, not undocumented persons. S-I-U-P, the sweep, the soup. Yeah. And it's because they they don't like the word alien. They're trying to remove the word alien from all government vernacular. But it doesn't matter. It's still the same thing. There are people... When they get caught from one of those, and the number of countries on the list changes, it, it ebbs and flows. It's been as high as 50. Right now, it's at about 25. Mm-hmm. It's usually right in about the 35 range. That's where the special interest alien term comes from. All the way back in 2003, 2004, the intelligence community came up with it. Customs and Border Protection adopted it, sent it out in memorandum to all of the frontline troops and have this whole protocol. So when I look for, you asked, uh, you know, how do you tell, what do you look for? And the answer is that, you know, the majority of SIAs are not going to be terrorists. They're not going to be any, they may be a victim of terrorism, actually, fleeing terrorist organizations, you know, Christians in, in, in those countries. The purpose of the interviews and the, what I call the near war, is to just make sure that we can rule out that they're not the bad guys before we let them in. If they're lying and covering up, if they can't describe the hometown that they say they're from in any way, or they describe it in, a, in the wrong way, that's going to be a problem. That means- Oh, you sneaky guys. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's how you do it, right? Yeah. So there's a lot of the, the, that kind of thing that happens if we feel like they're lying, but sometimes they come right out and like we had one guy, a Somali, who said, you know, I was a bad guy. I trained all last year to be a suicide bomber. We were going to, there was a group of us, we were all going to go bomb U.S. targets over there. But I had a change of heart and I blew the whistle on the whole operation. I'm just telling you that to just so that you'll love me more. But, you know, the act of acknowledging that you had suicide bombing training last year means that you're not getting into this country. <laughs> That's a big problem. But did he have like some sort of, I guess, biometrics or some kind of, re- I know a lot of countries don't even keep those kind of records, but there's more, you said there's more cooperation with, yeah, I guess biometrics, you know, fingerprints, retinas. There, and yeah. Like there, there is a lot of that happening. Uh, a lot more of that happening where biometrics are being collected. But the problem is, and, and we do have quite a few watch listed who are already on the terror watch list across the border. CBP, if you're reading my work about a week and a half ago, CBP issued a really bizarre, because they just never do this, a press release about two Yemenis who got caught in Calexico, California, just after crossing from Mexico, who were already on the FBI's terrorism watch list. Now, that happens all the time. Uh, I I wouldn't say it happens every day, but like probably monthly. Uh, Two separate incidents. One came in in January and the other one came in in March. And for whatever reason, CBP put a press release together with both of them in there. By the way, the press release didn't, didn't survive long. They took it down within 24 hours because people like me were tweeting it out going, well, my God, look at this. You know, there's a public record of watch listed guys. Well, my book, you know, you read my book, uh, is infused with cases uh, of people who cross the border who are already on a terror watch list. That means that somebody somewhere down the, the range in the pipeline in another country 
could have been us, could have been an allied intelligence service, noticed him or her and put them on the watch list because they regarded that person as potentially dangerous terror watch list. Those are the lucky ones where we run their fingerprints through a database and we ping. We get a ping, oh, this guy is dangerous. But there are a whole bunch of other ones that are not on any watch list. But most Somalis, uh, you know, there is no government there for 25 years. They don't even have birth certificates or marriage or driver's licenses or anything in a place like Somalia or Libya right now or Yemen in, in the tribal areas or Waziristan. There's all kinds of places where you can live your whole life as a terrorist and never get on a terror watch list anywhere. We have to rule out first that they're not a dangerous terrorist. You know, we're down in the facilities trying to, you know, the FBI with the Yemenis, no doubt, are probably still interrogating them now, two weeks later, dumping their cell phones. They found a SIM card hidden inside the insole of one of the shoes of these Yemenis. Uh, No regular migrant takes the trouble to pull a SIM card out and hide it like that. So, you know, whatever's on the SIM card is going to be going to be very interesting. Uh, The public will never know about that. They took the press release down. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You know, your book, I I didn't, like I said, I wanted to mention the border like is sort of a, it's kind of a political seesaw. (laughs) I mean, there, there's (laughs) right. I mean, it's even more than a seesaw. It's like a lightning rod in some ways. Right. You know, it seems like what you bring attention to has has a lot to do with you know the policy that you want or what what it is that you actually you actually fear. Now, reading your book, I felt I felt it was fairly nonpartisan. You know, it's it seems like a you know this is a journalistic investigation into what's going on at the you know because you can kind of you can kind of sense that when people have um, I don't know maybe a little more eagerness behind their their intentions or. But like yeah. I said, if it, it felt nonpartisan, you mentioned that you know the travel ban of the Trump administration did have negative effect? I mean, what was that? Well, well, the travel ban, uh, that's a different kind of issue. That's not a border issue. Or it could be a travel. It could be a border issue because when Trump tried to limit travel from a place like Yemen and Somalia through like issuing visas where people can fly from their airport to our airport and present their visa, Trump shut all that down. But what he didn't do is apply that in any way, meaningful way to the border traffic by nationals from those same countries. So what would happen is, uh, you know, Yemenis would be like, oh, well, I can't apply for a visa. I'll just come over the border and get the very same benefit. I'm in, I'll get asylum. I can claim asylum at the border. All I do is point out in the book that, you know, there was all this talk about the travel ban and I'm sure the intentions behind that were honorable. I believe they were, had to do with whether we could vet people from those countries before we gave them a student visa. You can't vet anybody from Somalia because they don't even have driver's licenses there, uh, let alone a criminal database that would log somebody as a rapist who spent five years in, in in a tribal jail or something. You know, people on the, on the liberal side of the spectrum get all verklempt about isolating immigrants by religion and nationality. And there's stories and investigations about it and all this attention applied to it. But never once has any of that attention or critique been applied to the nationality and religious profiling that we've been doing for 15 years straight down at the border. I go back to the the reason for that is to write stories and investigative pieces about that ha- means that you have to say that that migration is happening. Yeah. Just personally, just the number of children that are coming across. I mean, most of them are, you know, as young as five years old, but most are teenagers. It just makes me think like, you know, to send a 13 year old kid, um, how desperate, how desperate you must be to send your, your unaccompanied minor, uh, you know, to the border and hope for the best. I was just wondering what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I mean, the world is a vast population of really poor people. Most of the world's population lives in, you know, some degree of poverty uh, in, with terrible governments, corrupt governments, and nobody wants to live in places like that. I get it. 
The problem is, is that it's a big world with a lot of billions of people. And so at some point, you know, countries that are more fortunate have to apply restrictions. You can't just flood the zone willy nilly like that. Now you, I spent a lot of time with migrants. I look them into the eye. I'm right with them. I hear their stories and all the rest of that. And I get it on a personal level. I get it. But from a policy level, I mean, you can't just open the borders wide and let everybody and anybody flood your country just because they want to. And so it's a, it's an issue of uh, sovereignty. I'm not aware of any countries other than the United States right now that just don't care how many millions of people just flow right over their borders. Like who does that? Nobody, no country does that anywhere. Name one uh, that just says everybody can come in who wants to come in. And so we don't say that though, do we? Everybody who wants to come in can come well, in. Well, you know, I, I heard the, um, I heard a press, the last president presidential press conference, Joe Biden said, we will leave no child in Mexico. No child gets left in Mexico. Well, if you're the parent of a child and you hear that, you know, and you live in a poor country like Honduras or something, guess what you're going to do? First thing you can is you're going to get while the getting's good. Yeah. And a lot of these kids, are they, are they moving up on, are these just like field trips where everybody gets on a bus and they travels or, or are there organized smugglers that are moving children up as well? Or do you know? Yeah. I mean, a lot of them can self-propel as I call it, you know, you get on the bus and you get you get to within striking distance. You hear there's social media. Everybody's got cell phones. They're on WhatsApp and they're saying where to go and where the best places are to get it across. And there's lifetime intelligence. Then when they get to the area, then they'll have to hire. It depends on the area, but typically they'll have to hire the local drug smuggling organization that also has a branch that does human smuggling, not to pay them and, and get them across the river. But that's more like the coyote level. Yeah, that's the coyote level. Uh, lots of money being made with that right now. Yeah. So because, you know, if you're occupying the White House and your messaging to the whole world is, we're going to expand our capacity to help you come in in an orderly way, that's that's a very different thing than we are going to do everything we can to keep you out. Uh, so tens of thousands upon thousands are, are just pouring over the border to take advantage of that. They get legal documents within a day or two days, and then they can board a bus to anywhere in the country they want to go. So tens of thousands a day are coming into the United States? Uh, well, um, let me put it this way. Uh, in the month of March... Border Patrol encountered 170,000 in a four-week period. So do the math. In February, the number was 100,000. So they encountered them, or they or they let them in? They let them in. Different they things through. happen. Uh, they didn't let all of them in. They probably what they're doing right now is they're returning the single adults under uh, the pandemic pushback rule that Trump put in place. So if you come in as a family, you get put, put, put right through the turnstile, given documents, and you're boarding the buses. These are the ones that are claiming asylum. Well, not right away. They will eventually claim asylum. Almost none of them are eligible for asylum, but it doesn't matter. They'll never be removed because the other thing that Biden did was he eliminated all deportations. So there, there simply is no more deportations ha- happening, even for... Uh, most criminal aliens won't be deported. And they know that. So once they get in, win, lose, or draw on the asylum, they're in. Plus, there's this prospect out there where we're going to offer a path to citizenship for all these people. And so there's citizenship in the wings now. So even more are trying to come, want to come in. Now, the single males and females that get pushed back there's no consequence to their being caught once, twice, three times, four times, five times. And so they just keep trying over and over and over again, probably driving the numbers up a little bit. But the reason why they keep trying over and over again is because eventually they get past the border patrol and into the interior where nobody will ever deport them. So they right. just keep trying and trying and trying. The way it was before is you could get, you would get prosecuted the first time the second time might mean jail time. The third time, for sure, jail. 
plus a lifetime ban or a 10-year ban on ever entering. The, there's consequences. Biden took away all the consequences, so they keep just trying and trying again, five, six, 10 times until they get in. And then all the while, many, many more from around the world are coming, including from special interest countries. This is interesting stuff and a complicated issue. But one thing we haven't talked about much was the northern border. I mean, I think you're right in your book that they you know, had an increase in SIAs who crossed the Canadian points of entry, increased from 1,500 in 2013 to almost 2,300 in 2018. You mentioned, you know, some nationalities that seem to be appearing at the northern border. I guess my question is, what's, what's the difference and why, does it, why doesn't it get as much attention? I mean, there's a couple, there are a couple of key differences. One is that those SIAs typically who are crossing in from Canada, remember that you Canada doesn't have any contiguous countries. Like the United States has 26. It's connected to, you know, Latin America, which is just nothing but porous borders and airports into them. If you want to come into Canada unknown, uh, you have to parachute in with a dog sled team or something. You can't, like in the Yukon or something. I mean, you're just, you have to fly into an airport into Canada from any of those countries. And if, and usually it's going to be, uh, you're going to be a refugee or somebody who's already been granted asylum of some sort there in, in the home country. So the Canadians are going to have a book on you already. And so the programs that I that I reveal in the America's Covert Border War are tailored to a border where most of the people coming from those countries are complete strangers. And in fact, they show up with no identification most of the time, whereas the ones coming into Canada, there's something known about them. So these programs wouldn't apply, wouldn't work on the northern border as well. And why the America's covert war, border war doesn't really apply to the Canadians as much. That's not to say that homegrown born, you know, second generation terrorists from whose parents came over originally and their the children and the children's children radicalized couldn't come over and do something, but they haven't much so far, but they have attacked in Canada. Canada doesn't it has a jihad problem there. And um, there have been a, quite a lot of attacks in Canada and thwarted plots. You mentioned also in your book, there are border protection programs of a victim of its own uh, success. I mean, the question that people always think about is, well, how many terrorist operations were stopped? You know, 25 or 26 over a period of a, of a decade. I'm just wondering if you have any figures or any um, way of um, quantifying that. Well, the the, unfortunately, the answer, the definitive answer to that is classified. Those governments never want to release the uh, information on that. It invites uh, more questions. And how did you get this? How do you know? And nobody's ever going how we know. Uh, so that's the problem. But I do, um, I do manage to provide a, a pretty good idea uh, of it in Certain data points, for example, um, we know from the Mexicans uh, that they have apprehended 19 uh, people that they believe were terrorists in the last uh, couple of years. And um, that would be almost certainly with the uh, American Far War collaboration with the American Far War that's described in the book. And they've been deported. All 19 of them were deported. They were from places like Yemen, Somalia, Bangladesh, Iraq, Syria. So there's 19 that didn't make it to the border. And the presumption then is that whatever plots that or intentions that they had went with them, and we, we can't know what those plots and intentions are. Could be even the intelligence agencies that dealt with them don't know. The Panamanians told a group of traveling Arizona State University journalism students the year before last, who I helped uh, set up and get get down there, that they had apprehended, they had had 49 terror alerts in recent years, I want to say since 2011, uh, on their territory. And so things like that are happening in Costa Rica and Mexico long before they ever even get to the border. Uh, And then at the border, uh, we have had our share of 
migrants who had terror connections who ended up deported also, very quietly, furtively sent home, sent back to Mogadishu, uh, sent to Pakistan, deported. And the ones that get prosecuted, the records are amazing uh, and very detailed about their terrorism associations and activities. Uh, It's just nobody ever likes to report about them because then you have to say that they came (laughs) and they came over the border and nobody ever wants to say that. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a great example if I just have a minute, but Mm -hmm. I wrote a a piece the day before yesterday. It published on the CIS.org site about this Pakistani SIA smuggler that HSI just took down. Well, he's not arrested yet. He's a fugitive still. But they indicted him in a, in a federal court in, out of Virginia. Uh, and that guy was moving for at least six years Afghanis from the war zones and Pakistanis from a region of Pakistan that is well known as a haven for military. SWAT, the SWAT, SWAT area. Yeah. And the, the um, DOJ put a press release out. The Treasury Department put a press release out. And you can Google this and find that nobody reported any of it. These are government press releases. Uh, The CBP press release about the two Yemenis that got caught in California, nada, nada, not a word. (laughs) Man, I really enjoyed your book. It's really great to finally talk to somebody to kind of make some sense about what's, what's going down there. I mean, you hear so much and a lot of it's... Uh, you know, it's it's anecdotal. It's somebody who went down there for a TV appearance. It's um, someone with, yeah. you know, political uh, agenda. So you know, it could be the president of the United States who says terrorists are crossing and everybody calls him a flat out liar. Or and he didn't even go that far. Some of the time he just said immigrants from the Middle East are crossing the border. And everybody said that is a lie. Right. And I'm talking the Washington Post, the New York Times, NPR, all of them keep saying that it's a lie. Well, I would just urge him to pick up my book. I will do. And uh, another time I'll ask you what a, what a border rat is. But uh, <laughs> anyway. If somebody spends a lot of time down there and <laughs> loves it. And loves it. Well, be safe when you go back down there. Anyway, Todd, thanks for being on the live drop. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. That was my talk with Todd Bensman. There's more on this author and his recent articles could be found at toddbensman.com. He's also on Twitter at, at Bensman Todd. I would like to thank Pete Turner, creator of the Break It Down Show, a wonderful podcast with I think up to like a thousand episodes. So it's a very interesting guest. But anyway, Pete did a masterful job of editing the bulk of this um, episode. And I just would like to thank him. And I am just putting out season three. I want to hold out my hat a little bit and ask for some help. I, um, Try to put this episode, all these episodes together without any advertising breaks or or pitches. And as a result, it can become kind of time consuming. So I'm just asking uh, for a little bit of help. I have a one-time PayPal and also a Patreon, which you can find uh, links for in the show notes. Um, Really appreciate everybody out there. I would love if some people could help out. If you can't, no worries. Just keep listening.